Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Today's episode is part two on the topic of debt financing. If you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to listen back. Part two is focused on discussing different strategies for the types of financing we reviewed in the first episode. Enjoy. So we have all the terms down, and depending on how we edit this, that could have taken five or 35 minutes. We're 44 <laughs> but, minutes in, and we've only listed terms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's important. The definition section of contracts is very long. So what I, I think we would be great to talk about is if you're an investor or a homeowner, and you want to actually buy an investment property or, a, or your own you know, house to live in, how or what should I why would it make sense to get a different type of loan product or a different type of loan? And there are pros and cons and whatever. We can just walk through some sort of common use cases that we do as property investors. So I would say one major caveat is how these loan products are underwritten. So how they're analyzed um, varies depending on the product and depending on the type of home that you want to get. In general, very high level, if you're going to get what we've been talking, well, maybe even before I delve into that, let's just delineate out even further the different types of loans that we're going to be talking about. So we're talking about step one would be a conventional loan. So a conventional loan in the parlance of real estate would be, let's just say a residential conventional loan. So we're talking about a 30-year fixed mortgage that you put down a certain down payment depending on the type of property you're buying. We can contrast that with, say, a government-backed insured loan, like an FHA loan, which is different from a conventional loan in that it might determine, you, there might be limitations on the type of property that you can buy with it. There might be advantages to using it based on down payment. There might be different interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just real quick, I, I, John distinguished between these two well. But conventional in the common marketplace refers to Fannie Freddie backed loans, which are government or sure. somewhat government affiliates. It, right. um, but FHA is kind of its own beast. So those are kind of separated out. Great point. There are loans that you might get that appear to be conventional loans, but are not necessarily backed by Fannie or Freddie. So those could be portfolio lenders that are banks that are lending money, but are not necessarily complying or reselling their mortgages on a secondary market. So don't necessarily have to comply with some of those, some of the laws that a conventional mortgage might have to comply with. There's the hard money side, which is essentially a type of private loan. It could be given by a bank or an individual or a quasi bank or something, which generally also has different terms and a different purpose and a different rationale for obtaining it. So very high level, we're talking about conventional loans. We're talking about FHA loans. We're talking about portfolio lenders. I don't know how you want to classify yeah. commercial, lenders, commercial portfolio lenders, lenders, portfolio lenders, hard money. And then we could talk very end about private lenders. I would say hard money. Lenders are kind of like private lenders, but whatever. And then on the, on the real institutional side, you also may have life companies, insurance, insurance companies. Uh, they do a fair amount of, of lending as well. And also CMBS lenders, which are very much active or inactive depending on the state of the market so if you were to buy a property um say you want to buy an investment property you could buy it cash or you could attempt to get financing on it so why don't we just say i'm a new investor i want to buy a flip what would i do you can start either from the beginning or from the end so if you're starting from the beginning 
you're just thinking about what kinds of loans are available to me. Maybe who do I know? What have I used in the past? You know, it's, it, it's, you're limited by what's in front of you, I guess. If you think about it from the end and you think about what your end goal is with that property, um, then I think that's probably a more efficient way at arriving at the best option for you. Yeah. So if you're looking at it from the end and working backwards, uh, you might say, okay, this is a flip. And then you may ask yourself, what kind of flip is it? Is this, am I buying a, a piece of raw land that I'm going to develop? Am I buying the house next door to me that just needs a fresh coat of paint, but I've known the owner for years and they just want to sell it? Am I buying a property that is bank owned, has been vacant for five years and needs a gut renovation? That question is important because each one of those strategies is going to have a different timeline. Mm -hmm. So if you're buying the house next door that just needs a fresh coat of paint, you could conceivably be ready to sell that in a month or three months or four months. If you're buying a vacant foreclosure, it might be more like six months or nine months. And by the time the new buyer gets into the home, it it might be nine or 12 months. Um, and then for a new construction project, depending on where you live, it could be 18 months, it could be two years, it could be even longer than that. So if you're looking at one of these longer time horizons, it would certainly not behoove you to explore hard money options, for example, that generally have a duration of 12 months? Well, it's actually an interesting sort of analytical question because part of the type of loan that you might get is driven by the asset, that like to Ryan's point, like what you're doing with the actual thing that you're buying. And part of it is just driven by, can you actually obtain it for that property? So there, there might be a loan, like I, I would say, it would be amazing to get, say, conventional financing for every flip that we would do, but assuming that we could also get, you know, renovation costs baked in, but that's just not obtainable for these types of projects. The so. other the other question is what what will you or the quote unquote borrowing entity qualify for? So exactly. one one issue that I've run into in the past over the past few years is that I'm uh, somewhat newly self-employed and generally most conventional lenders require two years of tax returns with quote unquote self-employed status in order to qualify for a loan for any one of their loans, no matter how good the deal is. So as much as I would have loved to, to take advantage of that in the past, that just hasn't been an option for me, though it may have been for Ben or for anyone else who could have qualified for that. Yeah. Maybe. So let, let's look at it this way. Let, let's look at two different common investment hypotheticals that an investor might face and talk about how the different options that we might take advantage of to finance them. So we could look at, say, a very run-of-the-mill, a fix-and-flip. I'm buying a distressed property that has a lot of damage, but it has a lot of value when I sell it, and I want to sell between six and nine months from now. If I were to look at that, we could automatically eliminate a couple different types of financing for that property, just because it's probably the case that a bank will not lend money for that property under a conventional loan or possibly an FHA type of loan. Maybe there's a caveat if you're living there, but... And that that limitation may also be driven by the fact that if it's that good of a deal, you're probably going to have to close it quickly, which would be maybe in 30 days. And I would say it's generally not a good assumption to assume that your lender can close your conventional loan or FHA loan or even 
commercial loan that would otherwise that this property would otherwise qualify for within that time frame. Right. So that teases out another important thing, which is that just in order to buy the property. So if I'm if I'm buying a a flip, there are several reasons why I might not either want to or be able to use conventional financing to do that. One reason uh, Ryan mentioned is that banks generally, when you're getting a conventional or an FHA type of mortgage, require time to close in it and will often look at your personal assets as a means to underwrite or analyze whether or not they should give you this loan. That is contrasted significantly with a hard money loan or a private loan, in which case banks will, though be aware of your private finances, will not use that as the basis necessarily to give you a loan and also are created, and when I say banks, I just mean lenders, not necessarily a bank. These loan products, and as much as they're standardized products, are usually created to accommodate this type of activity. So they'll close within 10 days, 15 days, maybe three or four days if you have a relationship with a hard money lender in return for different loan terms. So a conventional loan would be, say, as we talked about before, a 30-year fully amortizing loan where you put down maybe anywhere from three and a half to 25% down. A hard money loan will be oftentimes an interest-only loan that might be between six and 18 months, will require probably some amount of down payment, maybe between 10 and 20% down possibly inclusive of renovation costs uh, and, and we'll have an interest rate that's more like 9, 10, 11 or even higher percentage. Um, however, we'll with, be able to close... With points up front. With points up front. Points up front meaning that you essentially are paying a percentage of the entire loan amount as a fee uh, to the lender to initiate the loan. However, you can usually... They usually will not care about so much your personal finances. So some of the things that we talked about about debt to income are not so much considered with many hard money lenders. Again, this isn't a standardized industry, but many hard money lenders don't care about that per se. They do or may care about how much you anticipate selling the house for or how much they believe you could sell the house for as a means to underwrite their product. And they will close within a very short amount of time relative to conventional or FHA lenders. And it's probably worth noting that that these specific areas of investment, there are institutions and individuals who are specifically targeting these different types of investors and investments. So, right, right, there's a whole marketplace of hard money lending that you can go to if you're not qualified. That's a great point. Yeah, if either the situation, thank you, if either the situation uh, doesn't allow for it because of either your finances, et cetera, or because, for example, you have a short closing timeline that you need to hit. If I wasn't going to knock my microphone over, I would have gotten up and given you a physical pat on the back. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. And it also highlights the importance of having the right contacts within your network because our hard money lenders, for example, make it far easier for us to say, yeah, we will really buy this in 10 days at this number if you're willing to accept that. And oftentimes if you're dealing with a distressed seller for any number of reasons, that's the ultimate selling point for them because it's more important for them to get their money in 10 days than to wait 45 days and get an extra 15%. So the reason why when you see fix and flips, usually the to the extent that they're purchased with debt and sometimes they're purchased with cash, but the reason why they're often purchased with debt would be A, because a conventional finance, a, a conventional bank can't fund the loan, can't essentially underwrite and go through the process in the amount of time that is required for you to buy it. B, because the person buying it, i.e. you, may not have the the credit or the debt to income ratio or other assets that a conventional lender might require. And C would be 
the bank itself might just not want to make this type of loan. They might not be interested in making a loan to a property that maybe has substantial damage or whatever. You might have issues with the appraisal, essentially. Yeah. One one thing to keep in mind with these hard money loans is that they will generally lend a percentage based on what the appraised value is minus renovations or in after renovations, rather. So... In order to qualify for one of these loans, they're essentially screening the deal for you and saying, okay, your numbers are like, there's enough of a a delta in there. There's enough margin for us to expect that this makes sense for you as a flip to the point where at the end of this project, you will be able to pay us back based on the value that you've created through this renovation. So to understand the numbers a little bit, a lender's requirements might be that they will lend no more than... 75% of the appraised value, which might be in this case, let's say it's $200,000 appraised value after repairs. That means the market value of this property when you're done with your renovation is $200,000. If you're buying this property, and let's say it's reasonable to assume that you can do this with $50,000 in renovations. So if you back into kind of your maximum offer price on this property, you're going to arrive at $100,000. The way to arrive at that is saying 75% of the $200,000 market value is $150,000. I know that I have to put $50,000 into the project to get it to that point. So I can offer no more than $150,000 minus the $50,000, which is $100,000. So based on those numbers, you'll see that there's a margin in there of $50,000. And at first glance, you'll say, wow, I'm going to make $50,000 on this project. But as we've discussed in the past... That is certainly not the case. Embedded in that $50,000 is both your profit margin and all of your additional expenses. So that's your holding costs for the six months that you have to hold on to the property before it's done or nine months or whatever it may may end up being. It's your mortgage payments, your taxes, your insurance. It's your closing costs on the back end, your closing costs on the front end. Um, the lender is generally not going to take those into account, but they're their so to formulas. Be clear, closing costs when you acquire it and then when you sell it. Right. Yeah. Brokers, so, commissions, transfer tax, et cetera. Any others? For disposition or for close? You got legal fees, so legal costs. You Origination have fees, pro- title, I was going to say processing title. fees, title ins- yeah, insurance. So it can, it, it can yeah. get substantial. So, you know, based on those numbers, you might at first glance think your margin's 50 grand, but the reality is it's probably closer to like 20. Which, depending on your circumstances and your arrangement, might be might be a good deal. You might be a realtor too, and that's your that's your way to continue building a pipeline and to uh, feed the beast, so to speak. But I think that's so. Yeah, to hearken it back to the terms that we discussed before, if you're talking about a hard money loan in this context, your I don't know in what order we did the terms, but your your loan length is generally going to be, I would say, very commonly twelve months, but could be between six months and 24 months I and it suppose. could be and it could be 12 months with a three-month extension option sure, or sure. multiple of those for a price mm-hmm. your um, your interest rate or your apr is going to be probably in the high single or low double digits so you're looking at i don't know eight percent nine percent at the very low end up to 15 20 percent at the very very high end as i said before you might have to pay points up front which are a percentage of the total loan amount as a fee to begin the process which 
some people I think don't consider as a cost, but can be very significant. So mm-hmm. even one or two points can be thousands and thousands of dollars that you have to pay either as wrapped into the loan or upfront. In addition to maybe a legal, like a lender mm-hmm. legal review fee, title insurance, like your, your right. personal closing costs. And then uh, on top of that lender title insurance, lender legal, and maybe an appraisal right. or inspection amount. Mm-hmm. And um, worth noting like that, that you're paying interest on the totality of what is being loaned. So right. that's that's both the principal and Some, the... Sometimes, yeah. So you're paying interest on, de- depending on your arrangement with the hard money lender, you could be paying interest on the amount that you're actually obtained, or you could be paying interest on the amount that you actually anticipate needing. So the difference is that you might, say, buy a house that costs $100,000, and you loan $100,000, but you know that it is cost fifty thousand dollars to renovate it, so you actually want to get one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. If you put say ten percent down of that total amount, you might be lending either one hundred thirty-five. So yeah, you're lending one hundred and thirty-five, but to actually buy the property, you only need one hundred thousand dollars. So you might be paying interest either on the amount that you lent, the, the amount that you needed to purchase the property, which could be one hundred thousand dollars, or on the amount that you need to purchase and renovate the property, which could be $135,000. But you might not actually receive the $35,000 until one, two, three, six months into the project. Would you say so, it's, it's more common for hard money lenders to incorporate renovation costs as part of what you're paying your interest, as in not what you need in the moment, but what you ask for, what you're approved for usually, in totality? Yeah, usually it's done based on the loan amount. Less commonly, it's done based on the amount that you draw. That's obviously advantageous, especially if you have a significant renovation budget. Right, as we're learning on a few projects. So, <laughs> yeah. So why don't we why don't we move to the buy and hold right. universe, which is has different considerations, uh, although perhaps might have similar strategies depending on the project. So, if I buy a two family home and I want to buy it for cash flow, I would say your options for buying a two family home are probably a bit broader than your options for buying. Um, a fix and flip. So you could consider hard money. You could consider conventional lending. You could consider FHA lending. The one, the one caveat I would add is that it's also going to depend on the on the condition. Yeah. So the way that I, I, I guess I we, we could maybe conceive of buying a home, a multifamily home, as like a hierarchy, and there's kind of an order of preference. And maybe my order of preference might be different from your order of preference. But I would say if I had the option to, to do it, I would probably say buy a home with FHA financing as the number one option if it's possible because I'd be able to put very little down and own a home essentially. So with an FHA loan on a multifamily home, say a two-family, I could put down 3.5% of the purchase price, pay some additional fees for FHA appraisals or whatever it might be, and then move into the home with only putting down very little. The disadvantages to that would be it could take a very long time for that loan to close. And if the property requires repairs, um, I might not be able to uh, I might not be able to obtain an FHA loan. There is an FHA 2 or 3K loan, but I might not be able to obtain a straight FHA loan. I also would have to live in the property, which is maybe the biggest caveat. Um, FHA loans are generally available only to primary resident owners, owner-occupants. And for for many reasons, a seller of a home might not find that as an attractive offer because they know that it will take a very long time to close in the property. And one additional caveat is that I need to make sure that I have sufficient credit and income and debts to qualify for the loan. So we're, we're talking here in the world of, it's essentially a, a loan product created for you as a primary homeowner to live in a home, but you could use it for investment purposes. And I've bought homes with an FHA loan 
though living in it, but in my mind thinking I'm going to use this as a, as a real estate investment long term. Um, I guess the second thing in my, my hierarchy would be to buy a home with conventional financing. So conventional, well, I actually don't know if that's the second thing in my hierarchy. <laughs> well, I actually would look at it a little bit differently. Uh, yes. Two a, different hierarchies. Yeah. I, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, for sure, I would love to be able to buy an investment property that hits my investment criteria while putting three and a half percent down, even if I have to live there for six months or a year, whatever the requirement is. But I think most people, do you, would you say most people don't qualify them for the FHA more so than let's say your average conventional loan? It's, it's the property that the underwriting for a person is probably more lenient, but the underwriting for a property is more difficult. Right. But w- what I would say is, I would rather a better investment, even if I had to use a more onerous financing strategy, than to buy a lesser quality investment and only do it because I have the ability to obtain an FHA mortgage through it or for that property. That's that's not to say that you can't make a good investment either way. I think there are certain properties that lend themselves extremely well to doing, to obtaining or acquiring through FHA financing. But I'd rather, if I can buy a two family, if I'm looking at two, two families right next door to each other, one of them needs to sell super fast and maybe needs a little bit of work, but they're offering it at 200 grand. If you can close it, close on it in 14 days, or you can buy the one next door for 290. That's ready to go. And the seller's in less of a rush, but they know they're asking a little bit of a premium. And so they're more receptive to a, an owner occupant buying it with FHA financing depending on how much work it needs and whatever my personal financial situation is at the time, I may prefer to buy the one next door and forego the opportunity to use FHA financing because the deal itself maybe make more, makes, makes more sense for my investing thesis. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, it's kind of a difficult, even general topic to discuss because it's so dependent on the particular asset. Um, I would still look, continue I look at, to look at it through your guys' eyes. I think that's the most helpful. Well, well I look at, I look at all of these finance uh, financing options as just another tool in the tool belt, right. and there are different projects that are going to that are going to make a lot more sense for different financing strategies. Right. Well, so, something something you just said, Ryan, too, is is interesting to note, which is that from a, a buy side perspective, to keep in mind that also the way you finance your property can have an effect on how the deal proceeds because certain sellers will be more inclined. I mean, it's naturally you're more inclined to take a cash offer, et cetera. And as you go down and put less down, it becomes more tenuous for that seller to proceed with with your offer. Yep. Yeah. So I would say I've, I've just to use my own life as an example, I have, I've purchased several properties or I purchased a property with an FHA loan. That was the very first property that I bought. I lived in it. It was a multifamily property, two family property. And it was a great success because I was able to live in one unit and rent out the other unit, ultimately moved to the basement and rent out both units. Essentially all the other investment properties that I've purchased for buy and hold purposes, I've bought with, I don't want to use the word commercial loan because that may be a little confusing, but I bought from a uh, banks that are portfolio lenders. So like non-conforming, non, uh, non-conventional loans, but that have terms that are comparable to conventional loan or to conforming loans. To explain the reason why I've done that, it might be important to tease out the difference between a conventional lender and a portfolio lender. A portfolio lender is generally going to be in this world of real estate finance, like a local bank or a, a, credit, union. a credit union or a savings bank or something like that, that is interested in getting your business for whatever reason, but 
is not either eligible or interested in reselling that loan. They want to continue servicing the loan for the life of the loan, and they have enough liquidity and other advantages to continue servicing the loan for however long you have it. So the advantage with going a bank like that is that they could offer um, interest rates and terms that are very similar to a conventional loan. So they may offer a 30-year fixed loan at, say, whatever the prevailing rate is, like 5%, 4.5%. Um, however, their standards as to your credit or your debt to income or whatever aren't governed by essentially you know federal regulations, but by their own perception of your credit worthiness. So in my case, in New Jersey, I've been lending, I've been buying homes in an LLC quite frequently, and I don't usually want to um, transfer the home after I buy it. So for various reasons, you may not want to buy a home in your own name and transfer it into an LLC with a, with a mortgage, one being because the due on sale clause of your mortgage could be triggered, and another being that your name is on the property records anyway, so you're sort of defeating the purpose. But having said all that, if you want to get a in New Jersey, if you want to purchase a property in the name of an LLC, you are generally not going to be able to get a conventional lender to do that. You're going to have to find a portfolio lender. So I've used portfolio lenders to do that that have offered me terms that are identical to a conventional conforming lender. So those are, like I said before, 30-year fixed prevailing rate. Uh, usually there's an underwriting process about my personal credit. So they do look at you know my credit score and my whatever. But if my credit score is above or below a certain number, it may or may not disqualify me as it would in the world of conventional financing. If my debt to income is a certain thing, it may or may not disqualify me depending on the bank's uh, discretion. In, in that world, it's generally more asset-based than, than borrower-based. So that's they may have certain thresholds that you need to eclipse with respect to credit score or net worth or debt to income. But so long as you are above that threshold, it's it's generally driven by whether or not the property itself is, yeah. a, is a good investment and meets that criteria. And then and there is leeway. So the, these banks will have, they might have their, they certainly have their own standards, but if you don't meet those standards, you might be able to negotiate some some means to make the loan happen, even if you don't meet the standards, as opposed to a conventional lender, where if you don't meet the standards, you just don't meet the standards because they the standards are set by federal regulations. So if you don't meet those standards, they can't resell the loan, and they're just not gonna they're just not gonna accept it. So it it would sometimes it could sometimes make sense to purchase a property, a multifamily property with hard money. In fact, we're doing that right now. And the reasons why it would make sense to do that are what Ryan mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that. A, you need to buy the property in a very short amount of time because it's such a great deal. And or B, the property is in such a bad condition that you can't possibly get lending from any other you know, institution or whatever. And or C, you yourself don't have the personal financial you know, credit, debt to income, whatever it might be, to qualify for a conventional loan or whatever other type of loan product you're looking for. So in that case, you're almost treating it like a, a fix and flip, except the flip part, the sell part, is going to be you refinancing that property into a conventional or otherwise more typical loan product. Yeah, another, this is actually just reminding me of a strategy that I haven't really employed in the past, but that is an interesting thought experiment for for the purposes of buying property. There are obviously advantages to you as a buyer for utilizing different financing strategies, and there are advantages for the seller as to why they might have a preference for one or the other. Um, I think we've done this in the past, but I don't know if it's ever been successful. I know of people who just like to make offers with multiple options embedded in the offer. So they'll say, yeah. if you if you want a 21-day closing, here's our number. If you're willing to go to extend this out 60 days, 
will we're willing to pay an extra six thousand dollars or something like that and that's generally just a way of quantifying the difference between the two different financing strategies how much it's going to cost you either upfront or over the duration of that something else we haven't really touched on that is maybe a little bit more common in lower cost markets but there's something called delayed financing which is generally uh generally entails acquiring the property with cash and then obtaining financing after closing so you buy the property for $100,000 because you have the cash sitting around and then you approach a lender to refinance out as soon as you close there are certain a lot of banks have limitations against it because they don't they they might have quote unquote seasoning requirements but there are some lenders who will do something like that they may just they just may have a little bit more restrictive terms they might not go as high leverage or they'll they'll limit you to a percentage of cost. Uh, you'll, so you'll be limited. Your leverage will be determined on a loan-to-cost basis rather than on a loan-to-value basis. So if you paid $100,000 for the property, even if the bank appraises it at $200,000, they might still only lend you 70% loan-to-cost, which is $70,000, instead of 70% loan-to-value, which is $140,000. Yeah. I mean, and I think as, as John always alludes to, uh, both in person and on on the show, there there are so many creative ways to finance your deals. And so I think, you know, one of the things, obviously the theme of this episode is to look at all your bevy of options and identify what's the best strategy for you. But I mean, for example, I guess you could probably approach your seller to do like a seller financing and say, you want one and a half million dollars, let me pay you $500,000 in cash and you take a million dollar note and we'll set up some sort of amortization structure, sure. you know, for your, you know, the rest of your retirement. I think that's sure. particularly good for yeah. sellers who are a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's also often used as a bridge. So you might say, hey, I I know this property is going to need a little bit of work. It might take nine months to do it. Instead of going and getting bridge financing and then ultimately refinancing into a more permanent loan, you may just say, hey, seller, will you take, will you offer this seller financing? Give me two years or whatever, knowing that you're going to probably refinance around year one, Mark. Yeah. And it brings up a, a good point, which we can touch on very, very briefly at the end, which is the world of you know truly private financing, which... I would say hard money is a subset of or a type of, but as Ben alluded to with seller financing, if you're if you're talking about somebody, maybe even a friend of yours who wants to invest in real estate, you can structure. A lot of times, people ask me like, "Well, you know, how do I do it?" or like, "How do I get money from my friends or whoever to buy property?" And there's no really satisfactory answer because you can structure financing and debt in this way in every way. Um, we've talked about this before a little bit with very high level like financing for deals, but uh, in terms of the interest rates, all, all the definitions that we talked about earlier, all of those things are totally up in the air. And there's, it's unsatisfying to hear this, but there really is no market for these things. It, it's really what you and the person that you're investing with want to offer. So you can, you can ask, say your investor, you can ask your investor friends, what are the sort of deals that you give your friends? But I've done that before and I've been amazed slash appalled at the types of deals that other people have have struck with uh, people in the investment world. And it's very common for smaller properties that to be the case. Nobody knows like what the market is. There's no commonly understood market interest rate for uh, a private money deal at all. I mean, there, there's a hard money interest rate, but that may or may not have you know, relevance towards what, you know, your best friend is going to lend you to buy a property. So that's a whole other topic I think that we get into. But um, to, to, to that point, the reason why a lot of these 
requirements and restrictions are in place for these institutional lenders or for these bigger banks or for Fannie Freddie at large is because they don't have any way of understanding you or understanding the deal without looking into these metrics. Right. And all of this is a way of risk. It's, it's, all, it's all a means of risk mitigation. So if they can say, on average, if we only lend to people with a 720 credit score with a DTI below 47% and we don't lend more than 70% on the purchase price, generally across the board, these will be pretty safe lending opportunities. But your friend may look and say, hey, John, I know exactly what you've been doing for the last five years. I've seen every property that you've bought. I know you as a person. Maybe we've done business in another capacity before. Your bank might want six, like your bank might be offering you 6%, but your friend may have a ton of money. He may want some real estate exposure and he may say, I'll do it for five and I'll mm -hmm. go a little higher on the leverage or whatever. And it's ultimately, it's an opportunity to create a win-win situation when you truly understand everyone's needs because these banks have very different needs than what your investor friend may have. And you have a very different need than the vast majority of investors who these loans are otherwise targeted towards. Yeah, it, it's a great point. And I think it gets to to sort of a problem with the industry that we've talked about quite frequently and, and why now, uh, I think within particularly the past like five to 10 years, there's been a lot more institutional-ish private lenders out there. So I think that for a long time, hard money lenders were almost like seen as a, like a subclass of human. Like they're just like the like loan shark, you know, like kind of sell your soul to get a property. And now we're seeing hard money lenders that are, you know, venture backed, that have billions of dollars in valuation that are advertised to me every time I watch a video on YouTube, you know, that sort of thing. Um, because so, they're listening. And because John yeah. watches a lot of videos on YouTube. Of, <laughs> my gosh, it's, it's, it's scary actually. But so because of what Ryan indicated about the, the status of the market of conventional lenders reselling their loans and the regulatory environment that frankly has, has come up uh, post the last financial crisis, the, the housing market crash, there really are sometimes gaps in the market for investors that can only be filled by private financing, um, either by like your buddy or by some of these companies that are coming up that offer private financing, although they'll look like bigger companies now. So there's, there's a market opportunity, in my opinion, or in many people's opinion, to offer different loan products that may be not in, in the world of conventional financing that we've been talking about in this uh, episode. For sure. I have a few other things that came to mind while we were discussing um, that I just wanted to highlight real quick, maybe as an annex or as an appendix. Footnote one. Footnote, yeah. As a footnote. You came in right at the right. I was just to about to close it. So please, yes. Huh, I slid right in. <laughs> All right. The first is seasoning. John, John discussed this a little bit before and I think I mentioned it too, but there are one thing you may run into when you're looking to execute on a burr strategy is that certain lenders will have seasoning requirements. So they won't loan on something until you've owned it for a certain period of time and it's quote unquote seasoned. So that might be six months or nine months. Um, and they really just don't want to get too ahead of themselves with constantly, you know, having someone who's constantly recycling loans. And it's another, just another means of protection for these lenders. Um, you might also hear seasoning in the context of um, money that you're using for a down payment, which is another, sometimes people say there's a seasoning requirement for cash used to close in a loan. So that prefigures a, a, a slight point that but is an important one usually with a conventional or of an FHA loan or a, any loan that's not a private loan there are usually limitations on where you get the down payment money for and it usually can't be lent so 
again, usually there's a seasoning requirement for money in your bank account. So if you just got a check for $50,000 in your bank account, it either has to be because you transferred it from another bank account or maybe got a gift, but it can't be because you got a loan from your friend in general. Right. And you can't just throw some salt and pepper on there to season it. Oh, no. <laughs> nice. I was just about to come we, in. We, we edited out so many laughs. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was just crazy. No, like, that was an edited out Actually, laugh. the whole room, I mean, I was worried about the structural integrity of the building. We St- standing so ovation. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I stood, yeah. Moving on. I thought that was funny, though. It just the laughter <laughs> so, was in here. <laughs> laughter was in silence. <laughs> so um, next thing is uh, interest rate risk. Um, this is, I think, only really applicable to commercial loans. Um, I've never heard of this in a in a residential mortgage context. But if you're looking at commercial financing and you're obtaining um, an adjustable rate loan or a floating rate loan, you may see that your lender requires uh, some form of interest rate protection, which can be in the form of an interest rate swap or an interest rate cap. The f- mechanics of each of these are a little bit different, but they functionally serve the same purpose. It's to it's to offer you some type of protection against a crazy spike in interest rates, and it keeps your interest rate payments, though still variable, a little bit more predictable. So they generally they they, they wouldn't exceed a third a certain threshold up or down. Predictably variable, right? Next one was John also mentioned this with his um, some of his rental properties, but it's not uncommon for investors to run into the issue where their lender will not loan to an LLC. Uh, it's just best to vet this up front and to ask. Uh, and I think this is actually a good lesson across the board. But if you have any concerns about any one of the points that we've discussed today, just ask your lender because it's a lot easier to figure out a way around it at the very beginning. They may just put you in a different product entirely. But it's a very it's a lot easier to deal with it at the beginning than to try to deal with an issue when it comes up two months down the road or 45 days down the road when you're already in underwriting or when you've gotten your commitment and you're looking to close. And it reminds me of one other issue that I've uh, run into, which is that you might actually be disqualified from getting a loan at all because you have too many loans mm-hmm. just in yep. general. So there, there's there's a like Fannie, Freddie guideline where you can only have X number of loans. That's it. doesn't right. matter what your debt to income ratio is. And I've is, heard whatever. that anywhere between like four and 10 per person. Right. And again, with a portfolio lender, you might not have the limitation. And with a private lender, you 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 know probably won't have the limitation either. There are also sometimes you may you may see some escrow requirements for things like taxes or insurance on larger properties. You may also have escrow requirements for replacement reserves. Uh, it's usually something that can be negotiated, but sometimes there's a hard stop on these things. That, that's another thing. There there are definitely in the world of again, like Fannie and Freddie compliant loans, you will often find reserve requirements for for certain types of loan requirements. As in, you'll have to keep reserves for your other properties. Say you own eight other properties, the bank might say, okay, we need to have $15,000 per property in a, in a liquid account, which can be a lot. Um, and that's actually, that, that, that could be what's called a covenant, a loan covenant, which is, it was actually the last point that I had written down, but a loan covenant is an obligation that you agree to maintain throughout the life of the loan as a as a condition of that loan and a failure under your covenants may trigger it may trigger some type of action that could be default it could be some kind of renegotiation you may have a covenant that says your gro- this is probably more relevant for commercial property but you may have 
covenant to maintain a certain level of occupancy throughout uh, for the property. Um, and if not, you may have to pay the loan down a little bit, or they may hold back some kind of retainer or some money in escrow. It can be any number of things. And when you're in the when you're on the commercial lending side, that's when you'll see covenants that are a little bit more unique and tailored to that specific deal and the specific risk profile of that deal. Although in the, in the residential world, you could argue that you have a covenant for primary resident type properties that you have to intend to live in the property for a certain amount of time. Yes, I just got lawyered. <laughs> no, I mean... Our legal eagle. <laughs> well, more than in any episode I think we have ever created, I would very much recommend listeners go back to the beginning of this episode with pen and paper in hand, take notes, make sure you fully understand these concepts. If you don't look them up or feel free to reach out to us on our socials. And I appreciate you listening guys. Thanks so much for your time and expertise as always. For the folks listening at home, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on the Brick by Brick, that's Brick x Brick, Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening.